All right, here we go. Hey guys, Dr. Eric, the fitness physician, doing another episode of the Relentless Vitality Podcast. I have a super cool guest on my show, Dr. Stephen Hussey. He is a doctor at the chiropractic and the master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon. He's a health coach, a speaker, and he's authored two cool books. One is called The Health Revolution, uh, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health. And the new one we're going to talk about is called uh, The Heart, Our Most Medically Misunderstood Organ. Hopefully I got all that right. So Stephen, how you doing, buddy? Not too bad. How are you? Good, good. So yeah, so um, thanks for coming on and uh, tell, uh, I know you've probably done this a million times, but you can give the cliff notes for however much you want to say about yourself and your story and uh, correct anything I got wrong on my bio on you there. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, I'm a chiropractor, functional medicine practitioner in, in clinic. I mainly do very neuromusculoskeletal type uh, medicine, but then like I do online consulting and I've written a few books and that's where I focus on more like the, the health longevity side of things with, with clients online. Um, but yeah, you know, my interest in health is stemmed from just like lots of people in this field, like from their own personal journey. Uh, and so like as a kid, I had very inflammatory conditions. Um, I used to have uh, hives and I had asthma and um, irritable bowel syndrome and terrible allergies and all these things. I used to break out in hives, just like all over my body, just huge mm. hives. And uh, ultimately, all that, all that inflammation resulted in autoimmune type 1 diabetes uh, when I was nine years old. And so I, uh, you know, my parents and I were kind of thrown into the world of Western medicine, trying to, you know, manage these conditions. And, um, and so that's what I did for a long time, I just kind of managed them. And, but, you know, in college, I started to figure out the way I lived my life had a direct impact on my ability to manage them and how effectively I could do that. And you know, through a lot of trial and error and just kind of figuring things out on my own, I, I realized that uh, I, I didn't have to live with those things. Aside from the type 1 diabetes, it was kind of collateral damage from, from that inflammation when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, being type 1 heavily predisposed me to heart disease. And so I've done a lot of uh, research into, into heart disease uh, and uh, trying to prevent, you know, this number one killer, like you said. And uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about it, I've, I've found. A lot of what I was uncovering was not what I was taught about normal physiology when it comes to the heart. Uh, and so I was just kind of started questioning a lot of things. And I started sharing it about maybe four or five years ago on social media, and people seemed to like it. So eventually I wrote this book, and, and uh, that's what came out uh, last April. Awesome. Awesome. So you were able to correct. I mean, obviously, you're, are you still on medications or insulin, et cetera, for the diabetes or? Yeah, I have to be on insulin as a type one uh, requirement. You know, I don't make any insulin, whereas type two, they still make insulin, they just don't respond to it. Right. Uh, so my, my body attacks it. Well, the theory is that the, my body attacked the cells that make insulin um, and I no longer uh, make that. So I have to inject it. Yep, absolutely. But you're able to correct everything else, sounds like, through uh, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's for awesome. sure. That's awesome, man. Very good. So uh, your physical practice, uh, in terms of, uh, is there anything, uh, what's your kind of bread and butter? You're still in the office physically working on people doing their, doing the manipulation and everything else under the, you know, physically related that you're talking about. Yeah. Very, very chiropractic. So very, you know, uh, structure of the spine, um, nervous system, manipulation, joint motion, that kind of thing. Um, just showing people what the correct structure is, mm -hmm. uh, and, and what theirs is compared to the correct structure and then working to, um, uh, ch change that and move it toward the correct structure. And, and the vast majority of people that come in, um, their structure is pretty messed up from what yeah. you know society has them doing. So um, I focus on that. But you know, chiropractics I mean, people come to me for pain uh, in the clinic, but you know, chiropractics way more than that. Um, it's about you know prevention, but also affecting the nervous system, which literally controls and connects with everything in the body. So we can have an effect on a lot of things. And 
you know, a, I hear all the time, hey, doc, I'm sleeping better. It's like, well, that's great. And it wasn't my intention. I'm just correcting your structure, but hey, it happened. Or I'm digesting better. Or my acid reflux went away. It's like, okay, well, great. You know, but uh, those are just kind of, you know, side effects from, from correcting the structure of the spine. Right, right. Yeah, that kind of leads me into, you know, what you were talking, we were talking a little bit um, in terms of a lot of it is related to the immune system, the gut and the nervous system and things like that. And kind of aligning all those principles. I found that myself with a lot of my patients. Um, and how much of that has changed. I think uh, I had, you know, in your first book, I think you touched a little bit about that as well, right? About like kind of ancestral living, the stress response, things like that, correct? I mean, um, yeah. you know, how we can modify that. Stress is huge. That's one of the big sleep and stress are always my first two I tackle. So I think you, uh, yeah, anything you want to add on there, but you probably have a, a, some unique perspectives on the stress response, given what you've been through and how you deal with your patients. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, just to sleep too, like if you're not sleeping, well uh, or not sleeping enough then it doesn't matter how much you do during the day to try and get healthy like you're not going to get healthy because that's the time when your body realizes all that stuff and makes the changes and cleans out the system and, and everything so if you're not sleeping well then it's really hard for your body to get any benefit or as much benefit as it could from the workouts that you're doing and the eating right and that kind of thing you gotta gotta sleep because you know if you're not sleeping well and your circadian rhythms off or whatever it is um you know adrenal fatigue um, then, uh, then that's a, that's a signal that there's an imbalance in the stress response of the autonomic nervous system. Um, and so the, the autonomic nervous system is just a system in our body that's monitoring our environment through our senses and telling our body if we're in a safe or threatening environment. Based on which one we're in, it has the appropriate response. Um, is it going to try and get away from this threat or fight it off, or, it is, or is everything safe and we can, we can digest and sleep and things like that? And so unfortunately in the modern world, there's a lot of things that can make us have a stress response, even when it's not necessarily a life-threatening response, we can have this low-grade stress response and that can lead to an imbalance in this, um, in the autonomic nervous system. So basically an imbalance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic, because they're supposed to be signaling both at the same time, balancing each other out. And if we have this low-grade stress response all the time, then that sympathetic response becomes higher and the parasympathetic gets kind of um, uh, suppressed. And so that, when that happens, that can leave us susceptible to acute stresses, um, because a surge in a stress response without the parasympathetic to balance it out can trigger lots of changes in the body. But chronically, if you're, if you're, if your body is thinking that it's in a stress state, um, incorrectly think it's in a stress state all the time, you're not thinking about things like sleeping or your body's not thinking about things like sleeping or digesting or procreating or detoxing. So you could have lots of issues and it could literally affect every organ in the body. But, um, but people with imbalanced autonomic nervous systems tend to have insomnia or digestive issues or sexual dysfunction because their body's just not getting into that state where those things are prioritized. Um, they're always in the stress. They always go, go, go. And in our modern world has a lot of what I would call unnatural stressors that again, make us, you know, perceive that we're in a stressful environment when we're really not in a life-threatening situation. Um, but uh, our big brains kind of make us overthink that we are and, and they've done a lot of good for us, but they can lead to an overthinking that can lead us to, you know, getting in that state and it's causing a lot of health issues. Yeah. I think a lot of us kind of put ourselves in that stress state, right. By just rumination and worrying and thinking about stuff. Of course, we're going, everybody's doing, you know, 20,000 things. I mean, we're all guilty of that. And then we were worrying about it, think about it, waking up in the middle of the night, think about things, write notes down. So we kind of bring a lot of that on ourselves in modern society too, for sure. Um, yeah. You, I think you also, like me, also do a lot of uh, 
use HRV, heart rate variability monitoring to assess that with your patients. And what else do you use to kind of assess uh, their autonomic nervous system, vagal tone, and how do you, uh, what are your, uh, I guess, best ways you work with your clients to improve their vagal tone? Yeah, so I mean, heart rate variability is the main one. Uh, I just get people trying to track that and getting the baseline and and then you got to try things to see what improves it or, or um, decreases it. So, um, but yeah, but other things that, you know, aren't as uh, scientifically proven, it's just even if you, like if you turn the lights off in the bathroom and you take a pin light and you shine it in your eye, you get like if you leave your, you stay in the dark bathroom for a while and you look in the mirror and you shine the pin light in your eye. And if it takes a long time for it to constrict when that light's in your eye, um, that can be a sign of, of uh, autonomic imbalance, uh, too much right. of a stress response, uh, just various things like that. But, um, but yeah, heart rate variability is the main one. And then increasing heart rate variability, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of different things that can do that. Uh, and there's a, and it's, but it, basically what it boils down to is creating a life that exposes you to nature, um, gives you positive meaning, social, meaningful social relationships, um, you know, a life that finds you creating or, or expressing gratitude. Um, and then, um, you know, and, and just, uh, you know, healthy whole food diet, like all these things are going to create balance in the autonomic nervous system. Um, you know, mitigating electromagnetic fields and looking at the type of light that you're exposing yourself to, especially before bed. Like, are you exposing yourself to light that, that wakes you up or tells your body that it's daytime, or are you exposing yourself to types of light, like, um, you know, more full spectrum light that is not triggering that, you know, because all that stuff's going to affect, um, how you sleep, which is going to affect your, your autonomic nervous system. So there's literally so many things, but then there's also all like the mindfulness practices, you know, that people can do, whether it's, whether it's yoga or even prayer or, or whatever it is that people do kind of a spirituality side of things that can, all those things, I mean, humans have done them. Uh, various forms of of those types of things spirituality for since humans have been humans you know and and that's there's a reason for that because it helps us calm ourselves make sense of this chaotic world and and things like that uh, and that helps us balance the autonomic nervous system um, but yeah there's literally lists and there's just you know heal the gut and um, chew your food enough like all these things have been shown chiropractic care have been shown to to increase heart rate variability. Right. Um, and that's what, that's, that's the kind of life we want to create, you know, surround ourselves. If there's toxic people in your life. They're probably not helping you achieve autonomic balance. Right? Uh, right. So that kind of stuff. But then, you know, when it comes to stress, like you're always going to have stress in your life. You can't avoid it. But research shows that the stresses that are the most detrimental to your health and to the autonomic nervous system are stresses that make you feel like you're out of control or in unpredictable situations. Um, and so those are the ones that, that, uh, really stress us out and make us and, and have an effect on us physically, a negative effect on us physically. Yeah, spot on, man. That's well said. I appreciate that for sure. I think, uh, hence the, I think the resurgence, I think more and more of people getting into, you know, mindfulness, breathing and yoga and Tai Chi and meditation and things, which of course have been around for centuries, but I think more and more people are discovering. And then, you know, the hard part is that one of the things, one of my favorites, which you mentioned is getting out in nature and doing stuff. I mean, think about, you know, all the, the ancient cultures that, especially the ones, the long-lived ones, you know, in Okinawa and the blue zones and even the American Indians, you know, they were always, you know, socially active, always out in the yard gardening or working and doing things and connecting with nature, connecting with each other. And that's something we've definitely lost or gotten far away from. That's probably the hardest to implement, uh, I think, um, you know, but you have, you know, just get outside for, you know, 20 minutes a day or something. I mean, there's something to be said for that ancient wisdom, right? And um, definitely, definitely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
Um, and, you know, and that also goes towards, you know, reducing inflammation too, as we all know, inflammation is, you know, the number one cause, one of the biggest causes of pretty much every malady that we face, uh, mm -hmm. stress and inflammation go hand in hand. So this could be helpful for reducing inflammation too. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of things like sauna and red light and stuff like that. And I think you talked about that as well for many reasons, but certainly for stress and mitochondrial function and things like that. So, um, yeah, so let's get into, um, the heart stuff. I'd love to dig in a little bit more and, um, uh, tell me about, you can uh, talk about your book a little bit and, um, but I definitely want to hear your thoughts on what you learned, uh, to the heart. And, um, I, you know, I, I've been reading, I learned reading and learning a lot of stuff in the last couple of years about the heart too. You read a good book called the, heart, I think it's called the heart book, De uh, Jeffrey Dodge, doc, I'm not sure how you say his name, a lot of, uh, good information. Um, you know, Dr. Broda Barnes, you know, back in the 1800s did a lot of, he's the pioneer in thyroid work and wrote all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. about heart health and just a lot of things that kind of not the conventional way, you know, and nowadays it's like everybody, you know, you know, don't eat this and take a statin. And I don't necessarily think that's a, the, the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for it. You know, I'll use the traditional medicines as needed, but um, I think, I think they're definitely overused, but the biggest cool thing I want to, you to talk about is, you know, your, your, what you've learned about the heart and uh, you know, the water, you know, the flow of blood, et cetera, fourth phase water, structured water, et cetera. That was all kind of a, like I, like I told you before we started recording, I heard about this, read about it a little bit, but never really did a deep dive. So I'd love for you to talk about that and uh, tell us what you learned, how you learned it, and what you're, how you're, what you're doing to help your patients with it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I'll just kind of rattle off some of the, the biggest misconceptions that I came across with the heart, and then we'll go into that. Like, you know, yeah, one is that the heart is, is not the main mover of the blood. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's not. We're taught that the heart is this pump that's that's, you know, contracting and, and forcefully pumping the blood around the body. And there's a lot of evidence that that's not the case. And, you know, if we just step back and kind of look at it, it's, it, it makes sense. Um, or I guess it doesn't make sense that a heart the size of ours would be able to create enough force to move the blood all around the body. Um, so there's that one, um, you know, there's the whole cholesterol theory of heart disease um, and how that's kind of very narrow-minded and, and short-sighted and how that's not the case and cholesterol has never been really shown to cause heart disease. There's, um, there's the idea that heart attacks are all, at least all heart attacks are caused by blockages and they're not. Um, there's, there's certain sets of heart or a certain amount of heart attacks that um, occur without block, a blockage whatsoever. And I, I term them metabolic heart attacks uh, and I describe why that happens in my book. And then um, one other thing I came across that I thought was interesting was that the heart rarely gets cancer. And so I kind of looked into that as well to just to try and figure out at least what I could find about why it may be protected from cancer. And I, I present my ideas there. But um, but yeah, so the heart, you know, it, I guess if you just looked at it and you saw that it was contracting and uh, and constricting and, and, and blood was moving out of the ventricles and out of the atria every time that that happened, you'd think that, yeah, it's this, you know, pressure propulsion pump that is sucking blood in from one area and forcefully pushing it out into another area. And, um, and it's just like it, from an observational point of view, it'd be logical to assume that. But, um, but when you actually look at, it, look at it and you look at the physics of it, um, it's actually pretty impossible for the heart to create enough force to, to move the blood throughout the entire body. And people will say, yeah, but we have contraction of muscles and we have one-way valves in the veins that you know, keep the blood moving in one direction. But they've actually shown this over and over again um, in the lab of Dr. Gerald Pollack um, that, and even before him, back in the 40s and 60s, there were experiments that were done where they stopped the heart of, of an animal 
and the blood continued to flow uh, for up to two hours in some of these experiments. Wow. And they actually most recently did it in Dr. Pollock's lab with a chick embryo. And they, once they stopped the heart, um, the blood continued to flow. And if they put radiant energy into the system, the blood would continue to flow um, hmm. as long as they did that. And so what's going on here? Well, it turns out, like to understand what's going on, we have to talk about what's called uh, fourth phase water uh, and or it's uh, exclusion zone water, structured water, it has a lot of different names. Um, and it turns out that water has the ability to hold energy um, in the form of uh, kind of like radiant energy. So that's energy that comes from the earth or from light, uh, mainly infrared uh, from the sun. And when it holds energy, and then the water gets next to a water-loving surface, a hydrophilic surface, it can actually structure itself. Um, so it changes, you know, water we see as H2O. Um, it actually restructures itself into kind of a new formation. Um, and it, uh, so one of the hydrogens is cleaved off and we're left with an oxygen and a hydrogen. And those two things team up with other oxygens and hydrogens and they make this lattice-like structure. It kind of looks like, you know, hexagonal structure that teams up with other hexagonal structures and it makes like, it's like a fence panel with the thing. And that forms itself onto the lining of this hydrophilic surface. And it can actually structure itself and get pretty thick, you know, as long as you're applying this via um, uh, radiant energy to it. And, uh, and so it turns out the blood is about half water and, uh, and it has the ability to hold energy, that water in the blood. And the, uh, the lining of the artery is a hydrophilic surface. And so this is what happens when we have sufficient energy um, you know, to the body, uh, or the water in our body is sufficiently energized and it will structure itself on the lining of the arteries. And the cool thing here is that when that happens, it actually creates an energy gradient, kind of like a battery uh, that, that propels flow. Um, and so they've done this with water in hydrophilic tubes and they, or they just have like a tub of water and they put the, the hydrophilic tube in the water and as long as there's radiant energy applied to the system, the water will just can start flowing through the tube with no pump or anything necessary. Um, yeah, and so they they and now they've shown that it, it blood continues to flow even after the heart stops in all these different animals. So, so yeah, this is what's happening. And so, you know, if if blood is is flowing, that's not to say that the heart's not doing a little bit of pumping. You know, when it contracts. Um, it squeezes the blood out of the ventricles and, and that's just enough to kind of get the blood moving through the heart itself, but it's really not enough to get it moving through the whole body. And so, but then once it gets into the arteries, the structure of water forms and that's what propels the blood um, throughout the, most of the body. And so then the question becomes, well, if, if the heart's not the main movement of the blood, then why is it there? What is it doing? Right? What's its purpose? And so the purpose of the heart is Actually, so there's there's a few different ways that water can gain energy, can can um, hold energy. One of them is uh, vortexing water in the presence of oxygen. So vortexing, I mean, like swirling, you know. Or so right. if you see like a, if you see like water in a river flow past a rock, and on one side it kind of eddies and swirls on the other side, that's vortexing. Um, or if you had like those old soda bottles and they put water in them, they would like swirl them around, you know, yeah. like that's vortexing. Um, in the presence of oxygen. And there's always oxygen present in the blood, even in the venous blood, there's oxygen there. Um, and so uh, when the, when the, if you look at the way the heart muscle is oriented uh, and the way it's organized, it's actually one big band of muscle that's kind of wrapped around itself. And the very inner layers of the ventricles are actually oriented in a spiral-like nature. So when the heart is contracting, it's actually spiraling, it's actually twisting like this. And so there are various points 
throughout, which the, when the blood goes through the heart, that it's, it's vortexed, it's spiraled. Um, and so uh, when it flows into the ventricle, it's spiraling in there. And when it's contracted out, it's pushed out. And when it goes through the valves, it spirals on either side. And, and there's lots of places where it's, it's vortexed. And so the main purpose of the heart is to vortex the blood, to almost like energize it so that when it gets into the arteries, it can form the structured water and, and propel the blood. So in a way, the heart is responsible for the movement of blood, just in, not in the way that we thought. But the other reason the heart is there is because if I was to go for a run, uh, my tissues would create a, a demand for nutrients and oxygen. And so all my blood would flow toward those tissues that, that need that. And so if I was to go for a run and I didn't have a heart, all the blood would go over to the arterial side and the venous side would collapse. Um, so we needed something there to help maintain the pressure between the two systems to almost slow the flow of blood so that during times of exertion, we, we maintain the pressure between the two systems, at least enough to, to not for one side to not collapse. Right? right. And so that's what the heart does. And there's actually lots of studies that talk about this. And I, that I talk about in my book with endurance athletes, mainly soccer players that show that yes, during exertion, the heart is, is slowing the flow of blood. And, and you know, endurance athletes um, have been known to, you know, have uh, uh, that uh, the bigger heart muscle and they're thinking, oh yeah, their heart's working harder. So the muscle got bigger. But in these studies, they actually show that the heart muscle got bigger because it's more effective at stopping the flow of blood that's coming in so forcefully. Um, like the walls of the, um, the ventricles have to get bigger because they need to be stopping the blood more. Um, yeah. So it's, it's pretty interesting. It kind of flips things on its head. And, it does, yeah. It's yeah, like instead it's, of a pump, it's more like a governor, you know, kind of. Yeah, and and so, yeah, so in uh, it, it's compared more to what's called a hydraulic ram, which is a, a type of engineering mechanism that does kind of sort of pump blood, but it does so only when there's flow into the system. So it's flow activated, which makes sense if we're talking about blood moving on its own through these mechanisms we talked about. There's already flow into the system. And so the hydraulic ram only works if there's flow into the system. And so the heart is like two hydraulic rams kind of put together with the right side and the left side. That's, that's so fascinating. And like you said, it does kind of flip it on its head, you know, and it kind of, you know, I guess we'll talk about like, where are some ways to, I guess, right. To optimize that, right. How do we get that natural flow, you know, in terms of quote unquote, energizing the system naturally, you know, is like you said, from, is it from movement, from heat, from uh, eating, you know, metabolism, you know, different, you know, touching the ground, things like that. Like what are, how do, how do we make that better? I think some people have even talked about, uh, don't they talk about like creating structure water to drink? I don't know if that makes a difference or not, but what are some things, I guess, to make that system function better, you think, based on that paradigm? Yeah, we touched on them a little bit when I was talking about balancing the autonomic nervous system. So it all kind of makes sense. You know, we don't have to do like a bunch of different things for all these different things we got to balance. It's, it's all the same things, really. Um, so yeah, being in contact with nature, um, even sounds like the right types of sounds, harmonizing sounds of the body have been shown to create more structured water or energize the water, I should say, um, and the right types of light, um, you know, full spectrum light, like the sun incandescent bulbs, you know, are way closer to full spectrum light than like an led, you know, um, with the blue light coming off the laptop and things like that. Um, but yeah, um, there's people, um, the sunlight, I mean, infrared light. So Gerald Pollack in his lab found that infrared light, especially the 3000 nanometer wavelength is the most absorbed by water. Um, and so infrared 40% of the sun is, is infrared light, um, sun's rays. And so that makes sense, you know, evolutionarily, we were outside all the time. Um, we were in contact with the earth and we were, um, you know, uh, we, we were, had the right type of light and, and 
um, the right circadian rhythm at the right times, you know, so all that stuff structures the water. And, and yeah, there's people, there are companies that have made devices that um, quote unquote structure the water before you drink it. And in reality, they're not structuring the water before you drink it, they're energizing it. Because if you were to drink structured water, you'd be it'd be like eating jello. Like the the water is like this gel state. It's like this, that's why they call it the fourth phase of water, because it's like it's not solid, liquid, or gas, it's between solid and liquid. And it's kind of like a gel, like jello. So if you were drinking truly structured water, you'd be more like eating jello. But yeah. you can drink energized water. Um, however, I feel you know, you, you can drink energized water and that's totally fine. I'm not, I'm, there's nothing against that, but I think it's more important to focus on the water that's already in your body, right? Instead of trying to, you know, structure the water, yeah. energize the water and then drink it. It's like, there's already like, I'm like 70, 80, whatever they say, percent water. Like let's, let's energize that water that's right. already in there, in our cells. Right. And so um, one of my favorite tools to do that is infrared sauna um, because infrared light is, is very well absorbed, but just getting out into nature, having positive relationships, um, right sounds right light like all these things like and it's really interesting you know we're taught um from at a cellular level that mitochondria are what make our atp and they are that's where their atp comes from and then we're taught there's always waste products um there's water and there's heat and there's free radicals and all this stuff and and none of those are really waste products um you know the the uh, free radicals are there signaling molecules. If they get to be too much, that can cause an issue. Um, but they're there as signaling molecules to signal satiety and things like that. Um, but also the water is in an energized state. So when your mitochondria are you know, breaking down the chemical bonds from food to make ATP, they're actually creating energized water as a byproduct too. That's what comes out. And then um, the heat that's given off uh, from mitochondria is what maintains our body heat but it's infrared um it's infrared mm. heat right so that the, the mitochondria are creating infrared heat so um that in turn helps energize the water that are surrounding the mitochondria in the cytoplasm of the cell so it's uh it's all pretty fascinating uh, to think yeah. about this kind of biophysics side of the body right um rather than the biochemical side which they're kind of they go hand in hand, but there's a lot of talk about biochemistry because of nutrition and pharmaceuticals and all the stuff. Um, but there's a biophysics side of us too. And so why is that all relevant? Why is the heart not being the mover of the blood relevant? Well, it's very relevant to something like heart failure um, because in heart failure, we're saying, oh, the heart, it's not pumping blood like it's supposed to, it's failing. Um, when in reality, if you look at it from this perspective, it was never the heart's job to pump the blood in the first place. Right. Um, and so we have to understand mechanisms, other mechanisms that may be breaking down that are leading to this heart failure. And that could be poor metabolism, could be breakdown in the structured water that we're talking about in the arteries. Um, it could be atherosclerosis because I, I, I doubt, or at this point, I don't know for sure, but I doubt the structured water forms very well on atherosclerosis um, when it, the lining of the artery gets damaged. So, so yeah, um, that's why it's very relevant. And if you look at the research, on infrared sauna use in people in heart failure, it is absolutely phenomenal. Um, so it just kind of drives everything home. Like the heart's not the mover of the blood. If we upregulate mechanisms that do move the blood by exposing the body to infrared light and, and, and creating more energized water that structures itself and moves the blood, then their ejection fractions go up, the size of their hearts go down, the edema goes down. It's crazy uh, how, how well these people respond yeah. to these things. Um, and that's what drives the whole idea home for me. Yeah, that's fascinating, man. That's really cool. I mean, and it, once again, it kind of comes full circle to where we're talking about, you know, with, 
you know, the ancient, uh, the ancient lifestyles that we've kind of forgotten about, you know, these, you know, think about the Indians, the shamans, et cetera, they're, what were they doing? They're outside in the sun, they're, yeah, maybe they're smoking or just touching the ground, but they're, they're heating their bodies up, they're moving, you know, moving, touching, you know, touching each other, you know, getting that flow, getting that, you know, it's all about, we're learning more about, it's all about the energy, energetic states, a lot of diseases are uh, metabolic in nature. I think, you know, you talked about that too, with the metabolic issues with the heart, I think, you know, and what I, a lot of, with my patients, I do a lot of what I call cellular medicine. Again, it's just treating the body at the cellular level. It usually comes down to energetics and redox reactions in the mitochondria. It's like if the energy going in, energy going out efficiently without excessive free radicals, when that gets mucked up, you know, that's the source of everything. And I think you're touching on the same thing and coming down to the bio, bio, bioenergetics, same thing. It's all about energy and energy flow, proper energy flow. When you get too much or inefficient, you get too many free radicals and it, and it damages the system and it's a, a vicious cycle. So like you said, it, it, it's pretty, it's just another way to look at it. Uh, again, it just all comes down to energy, you know? So, uh, that's- yeah. and there are more ways that we gain energy than food. Right. And that's something that's also been lost on people for a long time is that we think, oh, we have to eat and we do have to eat food in a certain, to a certain extent, but it's not the only place that our body harvests energy. Um, we get it directly from the earth when we're standing barefoot on the earth. We get it from light. Um, we get it from other people. You know, it's, it's um, and it, maybe it sounds woo-woo to a lot of people, but it's absolutely legit that this is, this is how we get energy um, yeah. uh, from, for different things. Maybe not metabolism and making ATP, but for other things, yes, we gain energy in other ways. Yeah, for sure. You know, the, I, I forget his name. Now. I heard a, a lecture about that and we were talking about, you know, here's photosynthesis. Yeah, plants do create energy and oxygen, et cetera. But, you know, we're energetic beings too and we make energy. And yeah, maybe we don't quote unquote make fuel out of it, but we do something with that energy. And there's a, there's a purpose behind it, you know? So uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, what, and then, and then on the same similar token, you know, um, we, uh, you know, if you could touch a little bit on your, the metabolism with the heart, with heart attacks, et cetera, because, um, you know, there's so many things out there people talk about, you know, with, you know, okay, certain organs, you know, only runs on glucose or only runs on fatty acids, which one's better. And you hear both sides of the story. Um, and then you hear the same thing with heart disease and cancer. It's just, you know, metabolism run amok, right? It goes, things become hypoxic. And again, the whole energetic system is, is just messed up. So, um, but yeah, what are your thoughts? And I think you've read a few blogs about this too. I, I, I did, I didn't read all of them. I kind of skimmed your website, but looking at like, you know, what comes to specifically heart, again, going back to heart, heart disease, you know, in terms of what causes blockages, what causes heart disease, it's, it comes down to more metabolism and energy flow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. so yeah, there, I mean, there are definitely heart attacks that happen because of blockage forms, but people should know, um, and we may not get too into this, but people should know that those blockages are formed by clots forming, um, mm-hmm. whether it's small clots that form like atherosclerosis is clotting material. It is not a buildup of cholesterol. If you look at, if you analyze atherosclerosis, there's a little bit of cholesterol in there because it happens to be around when clots form, but it's when arteries get damaged and then clots form to repair that damage. Just like if you cut your skin, a clot forms to prevent the bleeding. Um, and so it can heal. So it's the same kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, when we look at the metabolism of the heart, so that, you know, that's one way that heart attacks can happen. We can get a, a clot that forms or, or clots that form gradually over time, but there are a large percentage of heart attacks that happen and no blockage is present whatsoever. Or um, there's, you know, there, this comes from mainly the work of Giorgio Baraldi, who was a, a pathologist, a medical doctor and pathologist. Um, and, you know, he found that there were times where someone had a heart attack and they, he did the autopsy and yeah, there was a blockage somewhere, but it wasn't anywhere near where the heart attack happened. Right. Um, and cool. so, 
that that makes that forces us to look at other ways that we could get heart tissue damage because that's what a heart attack is is heart tissue damage mm-hmm. and it comes down to uh the heart metabolism um combined with an imbalance in that stress response like we were talking about so the heart prefers fatty acids or ketones for fuel um it's way more efficient when it does that or when it burns those fuels but it's always we should be clear it's always burning a little bit of glucose as well sure. it's never just burning one or the other and people like to think that it is or it's black and white but it's not black and white uh, um yeah. yeah but it prefers to burn fatty acids and ketones and there's studies that show that even in the presence of glucose heart cells will choose ketones um over the glucose which you know we're taught this is oxidative priority where glucose will be burned first if it's present but that doesn't seem to be case be the case for the heart and so there are situations though where um, the heart can be almost forced to burn more glucose than it wants to. Uh, and that can be a problem. So that's, that's when we get a combination of poor metabolic health, which is insulin resistance, which is, um, you know, burning more glucose than we should be in our bodies, forgetting how to burn fatty acids and ketones. Um, that's poor metabolic health combined with inflammation and oxidative stress that depletes nitric oxide and an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. When those two things, three things happen, and we get a surge of adrenaline from a stress response, from acute stress response, it can cause an issue metabolically because what that does is it signals to the heart to, to be under stress. And if we're already metabolically unhealthy and we have oxidative stress and nitric oxide can't help signal certain um, pathways to the heart, then we get this surge of sympathetic activity to the heart, which makes it burn more glucose than it wants. Similar to the, when we go for a run, and our muscles and our legs start burning more glucose. They start burning the stored glycogen in the muscles. Um, and we get what? We get lactic acid buildup. We get muscle burn because of hydrogen ions, things like that. So there's things that I think help prevent that within the heart, but it can still happen if we get well out of balance. And so when that happens in the heart and it starts burning more glucose than it wants to, we get, um, we get an accumulation of lactic acid and hydrogen ions in heart tissue. And to me, that's what, that's what we call angina. It'd be that pain. Now, if we're running and our leg hurts like that, we can just stop running. And that lactic acid is pumped out over time. Um, but the heart just can't stop contracting. Uh, it's always getting the signal to contract. And so we get that buildup. And that actually ends up with this swelling that actually prevents blood flow to an area. Because usually the blood flow is more coming into the tissue. The pressure is more coming into the tissue. But if we get the swelling from this buildup of lactic acid and our boxing blood that's just kind of sitting there, then the blood can't get to it. And then we get tissue death. Um, and, you know, I outline, you know, all the research and um, everything with that theory um, that's going on. And, and as, a, as an explanation for these heart attacks without a blockage, I do all that in my book. Um, but it's, I've turned them metabolic heart attacks because there's a shift in metabolism that happens that triggers this uh, um, to more glucose burning, which is not what the heart wants to do. Um, which, uh, you know, it's interesting because, I think that a mechanism like this of preference for fatty acids and ketones was a way to, it's almost like a trade-off um, because, you know, the heart, it, it doesn't, like the heart cells are the cells that you have, you know, once they fully develop, they can grow and become bigger as we grow, but they can't, you know, reproduce or multiply and become new cells. And that's why heart attacks are such a big deal because those cells, if they die, they're, they're dead and you're not going to make yeah. new ones. Um, and so, I think the trade-off was that those, those metabolically active cells were so metabolically active that they needed to burn fatty acids and ketones because um, they had to be that efficient. 
and and also the trade-off was they couldn't they weren't able to divide um, and become new cells uh, because that was the trade-off for being that metabolically active and contracting all the time. Um, I, I don't know for sure, but that's the main theory evolutionarily why that happened. Um, but because of that, our hearts prefer fatty acids and ketones. So isn't it funny that heart disease is blamed on fatty acids um, or eating fat, right? That doesn't make sense at all. Um, and, but it's, it's the type of fat that matters and, and saturated fat is the good type of fat that we should be eating. So, so yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Um, but, uh, but it's it really interesting when we study metabolism of certain organs and how that makes sense evolutionarily. Yeah. So you, do you follow more of a kind of a lower carbohydrate diet for that reason, just to keep the heart, keep more fatty acid as, as fuel kind of theory? Um, I, I mean, for that reason, but for me, it, I was a type one diabetic. It's way easier to control blood sugars if I'm, I'm doing lower carbs. I don't really have a problem with whole food carbohydrates. Um, and that does not mean grains or anything. It means, you know, um, carbohydrates you get from vegetables pretty much. Those are the whole food carbohydrates to me. Um, but, uh, but I think that our diet should be mainly centered around animal fat and animal proteins. Um, that's where we get most of our energy and nutrients from that's the most bioavailable source of them and then you add variety with plants and things um, and that's where your carbohydrates in moderation come from um, but uh, we should not be eating these processed grains and sugars and vegetable oils and things like that those are driving the poor metabolic um, you know epidemic yeah i'm big on like eliminating all the oils and the excessive poofas and things with a lot of people which has been everywhere in the, how many decades now it's terrible so yeah like you said, that's the right fast, the healthy fast, you know, saturated, you know, some, you know, coconut uh, olive oil, things like that. So um, makes me think about curious. It got me thinking about things like um, like with lactic acid, because some studies will indicate, obviously, sometimes it can be used as a fuel, as a signaling molecule. Mm. But, and, you know, how many, you know, you read, of course, you know, bodybuilding literature and uh, people who studied like uh, body composition, you know, like using quote unquote lactic acid training, right? Especially doing low carb to deplete the glycogen, you really crank up your lactic acid, crank up growth hormone, et cetera, to burn your fat and lean out and get your body primed to build. Um, but that makes, and then other trainers, et cetera, you'll talk about, you know, that's great, but if you could do too much of that, are you creating too much lactic acid, like what you just talked about, you know? So I think with everything, there's a balance, right? You know, so that got me thinking about lactic acid training, you know what I mean? That's interesting. Yeah, for sure. And like the, the cell, I mean, the body is in just life, nature in general, but like we look at it at a cellular level, it's incredibly, uh, resilient. You know, if, if we get into a situation where there's too much lactic acid around, you better believe it's thought of a way to get rid of it, which is to burn it right? And use it for something else. That's, it's not the most efficient way to do it. That's fermentation. Yep. Um, and we don't want, we don't want to do fermentation very long. I mean, that's, that's one of the characteristics of cancer. Um, when a cell is having to rely on fermentation and it can't use oxidative phosphorylation, but yeah, it, it's gonna, it's gonna burn lactic acid in some way. And, you know, in the situation with the heart, it's when it's acutely, um, forced to burn more glucose was causing the acute rise in lactic acid and it can't handle it. That's the problem, right? Mm. Um, but if some lactic acid is, is, is made, I mean, I wouldn't say that's ideal, but it's not going to kill you right there. It's just your body will, will use it, you know, and it's, it's very efficient at doing that. Yeah. Um, and so like when it comes, like, I think creating general health and creating athletic performance are, are two kind of different things because you can hack a system in your body for athletic performance um, in a certain way, um, rather, but you won't need to do that to create health. It's just right. what you want to do for performance, you know, because it's your job or your hobby or whatever. It's just something that drives you, um, two different ways of looking at things. Yeah. 
Yeah, but at what cost? Yeah, exactly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, and I love and and I appreciate what you said about cholesterol roller too. Not to get off on a cholesterol tirade, but uh, <laughs> I see that all the time with my patients. It's just like everybody, you know, in, in traditional mess, like drive it lower, lower, lower. I'm like, more and more studies are showing that, as especially as you get older, that the lower uh, your cholesterol is the more mortality and problems you have. Our body's meant to have a higher cholesterol as you get older. It's protective. It's there for a reason. It reduces inflammation. It eats up lipopolysaccharides and endotoxins. It, it has a purpose. So I think this whole statin craze is just get that, you know, get that cholesterol as low. It's, it's not the right answer. You know, I've seen so much harm in that, you know, so it's, it's unfortunate, but yeah, you're spot on there. That's for sure. Yeah. What, uh, is there anything, uh, what do you have planned for the year? Do you have any, uh, speaking engagements, conferences that you go to, uh, anything else? What do you have up, up on the horizon for 2023? Yeah, I'll be at, um, KetoCon in April and, and I'm hoping a few others, nothing's been confirmed yet, but, um, but yeah, um, I'm hoping the American Chiropractic Association Council on Nutrition um, and a few other more lower carb conferences. Um, I just got, I just did the Western Price Conference um, a, few, a few weeks ago. So, oh, nice. nice. Yeah. Was that? Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Uh, it was my first time to the conference, actually. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I got to speak. So it was, it was really oh, nice. good. It's good, good crowd there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, just looking to speak and, and always formulating new things to write, you know, and just working with clients. I'm actually hoping to develop a, an app um, where I can help people um, in other ways, not just consulting and, and in clinic, but have an app that can also offer people guidance and things. So I'm trying to develop that kind of thing. So, so yeah. That's cool. Do you uh, do your own research, write your own blogs? Do you have a team? Do you have people helping you with that? Or I pretty much do it all. You know, I, you know, I, everything like in clinic is going to always going to be my main job. Um, I, I feel like, um, and this other stuff I just kind of do on the side. So I don't want it to get too big that it overwhelms me and trying to do clinic and that too. Right. So, right. but who knows, it may shift one day and I may right. go the other way. So we never know. Right. Are you reading any good, uh, non-medical books nowadays? Do you read, do you read much or? Um, I do, I do like, uh, to read novels. Um, and some of my favorite authors there are Michael Crichton and Dan Brown. Um, but, uh, but sometimes I get super excited. So, so excited about the, uh, my medical books, like I'm reading Anatomy Trains again right now yeah. um, by Thomas Myers. And I'm really excited about these, this guy here, this um, uh, from Gilbert Lang, just supposedly tells us that we don't really understand the cell and, or at least it's not the, not what we learned in our medical textbooks, you know? Nice. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about those types of things. I like reading those types of theories and, and getting yeah. Uh, yeah. the whole picture, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to write that down and check that out myself because I'm the same way. I like to read just different stuff and get different perspectives. That's the only way to learn, you know. I realize exactly. I realize more and more every day I, I, how little I know, you know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, the more you learn, the less you know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, go ahead and uh, plug your website and your book where, where people can find it and anything else you want to say about yourself, man. Yeah, my website is resourceyourhealth.com and uh, my blog's on there. I haven't written the blog in a long time, but um, uh, it's up there and, uh, and my books are up there. My health coaching is at resourceforhealth.com. And then my books are on Amazon. Um, people can also, if they don't want to do Amazon, they can go to the publisher website, which is Chelsea Green Publishing. And then I'm on social media. It's just uh, DR Stephen Hussey. Uh, people can find me and contact me there as well. Awesome. Cool, man. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you having you on and uh, I'll uh, make sure everybody uh, gets, gets to hear about you and uh, learns about you on social media and everything else. So appreciate it.